once I decided, I was uh, 20 years of age when I made that decision, hey, that's what I ought to do. I ought to study veterinary medicine. I never deviated from it. And at this point in my life, I'm sure if I could live my life over, I would do the same thing. From Amsterdam Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Robert M. Miller. Dr. Miller is an equine behaviorist, veterinarian, and author. He was born in New York and raised in Tuscan, Arizona. After serving in the infantry in World War II, he attended and graduated from the veterinary school at Colorado State University in 1956. He established the Conejo Valley Veterinary Clinic in Thousand Oaks, California in 1959 and was the pioneer of the larger multi-doctor practice, a rarity in its day. 31 years later, he retired as a renowned veterinarian and expert in ethology and began a speaking career. Dr. Miller has visited every continent, giving lectures to colleagues, conventions for animal groups, horse organizations, breed organizations, and other clients. He's published many books on horsemanship, but what you might not know is that his list of credits also includes seven books of comedic cartoons. His acute sense of humor and love of drawing spilling out onto the pages of magazines and books as fast as the insights came to his quick-witted and creative mind. To date, Dr. Miller has published a staggering total of over 20 books. On top of this, he has authored 50 scientific papers and hundreds of magazine articles for both veterinary journals and equine publications, serving on the editorial staff of Veterinary Medicine, Modern Veterinary Practice, Veterinary Forum, and Western Horseman magazines. Now, before I get into this episode, I wanted to let you guys know we have a brand new limited edition Blunt Dissection podcast t-shirt available. If you would like to show your appreciation and support the work that I do in creating these podcasts, then jump across my website, drdavenickel.com forward slash shop. The t-shirts are hand printed here in Brighton, use organic fair trade cotton and environmentally safe inks. But most importantly, they do make the wearer look smoking hot. Get yours today while stocks last. Every t-shirt gets a free podcast laptop sticker too. And of course, my enormous gratitude. Now, back to the show. As I listened back to this episode, it struck me how much I was smiling and felt joy in my heart. Partly this is due to the level of nostalgia from the insight into a time and world veterinary medicine is in danger of forgetting. But it's also because Dr. Miller is such a funny, warm and engaging person to spend time with. The insights, storytelling and humour that Dr. Miller shares make this one of my all-time favourite episodes. And I rather suspect that by the end, you'll feel the same way too. So sit back and enjoy this episode with a man for whom legend seems just too small. A word. I give you my conversation with the wonderful Dr. Robert M. Miller. All right, so I am today extremely privileged to be in the California. It's not really the outback. I've spent a lot of time in my life living in Australia, but in this beautiful canyon, I believe we've had, as you guys have had, a lot of rain, more rain than you've had in a it's long been a perfect while. winter. Perfect winter. So lush green hillside i can see some beautiful pine trees around some eucalyptus off in the distance amazing smells as i was i was walking up to the front door and the owner of that front door is none other than dr robert m miller so dr miller welcome to blunt dissection thank you um i was introduced to you i only became aware of your work very recently actually for my sins when a mutual acquaintance of ours. Um, I think we were both interviewed for a magazine article on the use of comedy in veterinary medicine. 
And I read the article back, which was due to be published, and I read about all these other veterinarians using comedy in, in ways and, and times. And one name jumped out at me in particular because I knew lots of the other doctors and, and knew of their work, but your work I had never encountered before. And then I was doubly fascinated because your work had such an artistic edge to it. And a lot of the themes of some of the podcast guests have recently have been about finding balance within their lives as veterinarians and some use art and some use sport. So it was really interesting to find somebody who used art and comedy and writing as I delved deeper into learning a bit more about your work. So perhaps a good start point would be to talk about, and I, I want to talk about your life as an equine vet. I would like to talk about your life as you know where the illustrations and cartoons started, but maybe let's go back and just talk about your entry into veterinary medicine like many moons ago, because you are without a shadow of a doubt, let's use the term, the most wise guest we've had on the show. And I hope the heck I'm doing as well when I reach your age as as you look to be just now, because you look like an extremely, I'm allowed to say your age on the show. Sure. 92, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that was just uh, this month. I was 92. Well, congratulations on that. I'm Thank you. I'm flabbergasted. Both you and Debbie are like spring chickens. It's incredible. So take us back. What, how did you find your way into veterinary medicine? What was the, the, the magnet that pulled you in? Unlike uh, today's students who usually say they... <laughs> They wanted to become a veterinarian when they were four years of age or six years of age. It never remotely occurred to me. For one thing, the uh, little was known about veterinary medicine except where kids were raised on a farm. I was uh, born in 1927, so I grew up during the Great Depression. We always had uh, pets, dogs. They were f never fed dog food. They were fed scraps, uh, leftovers. Dog food was available, but... Uh, Nobody bought it. Right. Very few people actually bought dog food. And uh, I remember in town, a place called Dog and Cat Hospital. And up the street was a place called the Doll Hospital. Well, they were repaired toys. And to me, it was the same sort of thing. I had no idea of... Uh, the education required for a veterinarian. I started uh, doing farm work at 15. The war, World War II had started, and uh, there was a volunteer organization called Victory Farm Volunteers. They'll take you any place in the United States free of charge if you would work for $1 a day plus room and board. Right. So I jumped at the opportunity, and... Uh, I was interested in American history, so I picked Vermont. My first uh, job was in Vermont in the Green Mountains. I was interested in agriculture, so I was interested in uh, a modern scientific operation. A dairy farm is what I requested. Yep. But I had no choice. They decide where you work. Well, I went to work on a farm where the house was built in the 1700s. There was no electricity. There were 15 mixed-breed cows on the place. I was very disappointed until I stepped into the house and saw that one wall was covered with rifles, shotguns, and traps, and kerosene lanterns, and I suddenly realized I'd stepped back into the 19th century. Right. A fascinating summer of my life. I volunteered again the next summer, 
this time they put me on a modern electric milking machine farm and it was okay but it wasn't the same experience but that's where the for the first time in my life i saw a veterinarian do you want me to tell the oh yeah like i'm already fascinated this might be the longest interview we ever do we had a downer cow and the farm manager he didn't own the farm it was an absentee owner but the farm manager uh, his name was bruce said uh she'd been a good cow he said i'm gonna call the vet so he called the veterinarian and this uh, elderly man came out and stood there and looked at this cow she'd been down for over a week if i remember and he he kicked her a couple of times and then he he said nah i said ah bruce he said she's a goner he said he said this you're wasting your time bruce said well she's been a good cow she's given us some good calves i just wanted to be sure he okay he said uh go ahead and put her down and uh, the veterinarian said okay can i borrow a gun and he said, sure. He went in the house and came out with a 12-gauge shotgun. He said, Bob, come on in the house. You don't want to watch this. I was 16 at this point. I said, yes, I do. <laughs> he shrugged and went in the house. He didn't want to watch. And uh, I watched the veterinarian put the barrel of the shotgun in the cow's ear and pull the trigger. That did not inspire me to go into veterinary medicine. <laughs> I knew I wanted to be in the animal world. By the, the as I said, this was early during World War II. The last year of the war, I uh, went into the army. I was drafted. I just turned eighteen. They were scraping the bottom of the barrel, yep. and it was nineteen forty-five. Right. And uh, I trained uh, as an infantryman. The war ended just as I finished training, and. Uh, I ended up in Germany in the Army of Occupation. I saw a veterinarian for the second time in my life. We had a, a pet dog in this small detachment I was in. And uh, the dog was ill one day. And he said, hey, look, call a vet. So they called a civilian veterinarian out. He came out and uh, left some pills for the dog. I wasn't disappointed in it, but it didn't inspire me in any way. When I got out of the Army, I started college under the GI Bill, majoring in agriculture, looking to get a degree in animal husbandry at the University of Arizona. That's where my family lives. So I went back and stayed with my family and attended the University of Arizona under the GI Bill. My second week in school, there was a mandatory course called Introductory Veterinary Science, taught by a veterinarian. And... In the second week, he started to reminisce about his practice days. And as I listened, I thought, hey, I'm interested in science. I want to work with animals. If I became a vet, I'd have a chance to work with animals and fulfill my life's ambition, which was to own a small farm. And uh, I went home, told my mother, I think I know what I want to do when I finish uh, school here. She said, what's that? I said, uh, I want to study veterinary medicine, become a veterinarian. She said, oh, that's perfect for you. <laughs> <laughs> Mums know. I applied five times, was turned down five times. My grades weren't high enough, and I didn't. the competition was fierce after World War II. Yeah. The first year I applied, 
for example, I applied to every school in the United States, but Colorado was the one I had my main interest in. You know why? Because I'm a skiing fanatic, and I, I'm living in southern Arizona. I wanted to live in the Rocky Mountains where I could ski. That makes sense. I got my degree in agriculture, bachelor's degree. Yep. And I moved to Colorado. Yeah. Even though I was applying to a lot of schools, that's the school I, I wanted particularly. Yep. And established residency in the state. I worked for the uh, city and county of Denver veterinarian, the late Dr. Bob Anderson, who became a lifetime friend. And uh, he wrote me a letter of recommendation, which I never saw, but I think must have helped to get me in because when I did get in, well, they were down to 700 applicants by that time. This was five years later. Yep. And I was told I was near the top of the list. Yeah. So I'm sure it wasn't the residency alone. It was his letter of recommendation. And the rest is history. It's incredible just thinking back to those times. How did you feel when you were, you know, each time, how were you able to reconcile or, or move past the rejection and then get back on? But, and no pun intended. Very good question list. because there were 60 students all men except for one woman, majoring in animal husbandry in my class. Yep. 40 of them were pre-veterinary students. Uh, Only one made it to veterinary school, and that was me. And that's because I simply persisted. I hung in there. Did you have any mental judo to do in order to outlast and have the, have that sort of resilience and tenacity to to start coming back. I just couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do with my life, frankly, to be honest. It's absolute commitment. Once I decided, I was uh, twenty years of age when I made that decision. Hey, that's what I ought to do. I ought to study veterinary medicine. I never deviated from it. And at this point in my life, I'm sure if I could live my life over, I would do the same thing. I've heard you say that other times. And I, I want to jump in and get your thoughts on what the profession looks like today compared to when you entered it. But sticking back with, you know, you're in vet school, where did the love, so you, you wanted to have the farm. Now, was that always something you wanted to have? Was it, was it always horses that you had that love in? Horses and cattle. And my family was uh, what we call low middle class, the Great Depression. Yeah. Till the war started. Yeah. My love for animals is what prompted me to volunteer for the farm work. Yep. That first year of that farm in Vermont, they didn't have any motorized equipment except one old Ford car, a Model T Ford. Model T. So I got to work with draft horses, uh, plowing the fields and uh, cultivating. And the high spot of the day after putting in a 10, sometimes 12-hour day, was getting aboard the horse bareback and riding back in that was that was that was my reward for the day so i wanted to own i wasn't thinking of business wise i was yeah. thinking of lifestyle i wanted to own a small farm out in the countryside i always loved the outdoors and nature that's why i love skiing so much yeah and i thought probably it would be a cattle and I would have horses because uh, I developed a love for horses early in life. But 
it wasn't just horses because my after school jobs, I worked for a pet shop. I worked for a grooming parlor, uh, bathing, bathing dogs. Once I decided on veterinary medicine, by that time I was a, a war veteran. Yep. I went to work for a general practitioner in Tucson, near Tucson. He was out in the countryside, but enjoyed that tremendously. So that just reinforced what I wanted to do. Right. And you were, I'm actually too curious about things further back, maybe maybe in your upbringing. What fostered that love of animals? And, and also when you reach back and think about your writing, you know, there's two very, obviously as all as vets, we all have to write very much, but the writing you do is a much more creative form of writing. The science brain and the creative brain, where do those influences come in your, in your background? I don't know. All I know is, I, for example, I'm a cartoonist. You know that. Yeah. I remember cartooning in a classroom and passing cartoons around just to make the guys laugh. I did the same thing in the Army. I never ever dreamed I'd become a professional cartoonist. Yeah. I just enjoyed that. And mostly I was drawing pictures of animals. The books are, I was a library freak. Yeah. I'd constantly go to the library and come home with a stack of books. Most of the books were animal-oriented. Either, um, I can even tell you the authors, Carl Akeley, who did so much uh, exploration in uh, Africa. And uh, fiction, I I never was a fiction fan, still am not, except for the stories that appeal to me with an animal theme to them. I read every book I could about whaling, for example. Right. (laughs) I never dreamed I'd end up doctoring dolphins and whales for Pacific Ocean Park. (laughs) But I had an early adolescent interest in in, uh, that. So animals have been a love. And my father, who grew up on a farm, loved horses I remember twice that we went out in Tucson. We rented horses and went for a ride. He loved horses, but it never became his occupation after he was uh, older enough. So I'm imagining you've seen quite a lot of um, change over the years. And um, I would love to come on to your thoughts because you've pioneered some different ways of thinking about a horse upbringing and horse, you know, management for want of a better phrase. And come on to those in a second. But in your career, you know, we talk a lot about change. Everybody talks about change and the veterinary profession has long been thought of as being this quite change resistant, quite conservative profession. I often wonder about, you know, right now the big changes and challenges for us seem to be all around corporate ownership, around generational differences and i have this theory and i want i want you to poke holes in this theory or get curious with it but i overheard a lot of practice owners now complain about millennials that's one of the things you're getting these young dogs to do anything is is something everybody complains about and i have this theory i overheard the former president of the british veterinary association or was it the royal college of uh veterinary surgeons was it might have been the, the president of that so forgive me i'm not entirely sure which of those organizations but it was a very senior figure who in one of those organizations and he was describing a time when just after he graduated and his boss was also former 
war veteran. This is back in the United Kingdom. And this the guy was he's a big guy. And he busted his arm. He was in mixed practice and he busted his arm. And when I say busted, I mean he broke it. Had to go to hospital and had a cast put on the thing. And he so he showed up for and called his boss and shows up to work for the next day and his boss says, uh, he said, Boss, I'm broken my arm. And his boss says, All right, well, what are you gonna do? He said, Well, I've broken my arm, boss. What can I do? His boss says, and he says, I can't I can't drive or anything. And he still has to go out and rectal all these cattle and all this. His boss says, and he's from Yorkshire, so he says, I'll get Vals the taxi. You get him a taxi. And so he put him in a cab around the countryside. He had two days off to get his cast set and to get let the thing set, and then he was back on the job. And I'm absolutely certain that his boss then was thinking the same thing as a lot of people now, or I, I have the suspicion, I should say, that his boss was thinking, these young vets, they don't know they're born, they've got it easy. And I wonder what your perspective is, having seen so many generations coming through and, and, and things evolving. What's your perspective on, is it a current thing or has there always been this generational interface challenge, shall we call it? First of all, the, the generational changes. I'm plural because I've seen several generations of veterinarians, right? It's not unique to veterinary medicine. Society's changing. And that simply includes veterinary medicine. My dream, all through veterinary school, right until my senior year, was to open a, a practice in a, a rural area. I'd actually picked Steamboat Springs, Colorado, because had cattle, horses, dogs, and cats. I wanted to do it all. And it was a ski town. And I was skiing there as a senior student and stopped to talk to a guy on the hill. He says, where are you from? I said, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. He says, oh, yeah. He says, I went to school there. I said, well, that's what I'm doing. He says, yeah, what are you majoring in? I said, uh, veterinary medicine. He says, oh, really? He says, I'm a veterinarian. I said, yeah, is that right? I said, where do you live? He's right here in Steamboat Springs. I just opened a practice here. Well, I just crashed. I, because the small town that it was then, I didn't think it could possibly support more than one veterinarian. So I was crushed with disappointment and started thinking of where else in the state and uh, exploring what time I had. I'd go visit a ski town and see if I, there's another town that could use me. I was on ambulatory uh, with Dr. Pearson with four students and a professor. Yep. It was uh, it was the second week in February, uh, 1955, and uh, it was 7:30 p.m. It was 10 degrees above the zero Fahrenheit. Yeah, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. <laughs> and uh, I was wearing my sheepskin coat, and this was the last call of the day. And Dr. Pearson reached in the bucket. He had to castrate a yearling Guernsey bull, reached into a bucket of cold water to get his instruments. And for the first time, I realized what it would, not what it would be like to ski in Colorado, but to practice veterinary medicine. I turned to my classmate alongside of me. I said, I just made a major change in my life plans. He said, yeah, what? I said, I'm going back to southern Arizona to practice. I'm going to commute to my skiing. <laughs> he was from southern Utah. He says, I just made the same decision. <laughs> and that's what I did. 
for the first year. I met Debbie, my wife, in my senior year, and we planned to get married in the fall, September. So I spent the spring and summer of that year working for other practices. And um, I was doing what they call relief work, taking over practice. In each case, the veterinarian had said, uh, we haven't had a vacation, two of them said, for eight years, my wife and I. So we're going to take a two-week vacation. And then the third one was the practice, my dream practice. It is a town east of Tucson called Tonka Verde. And he had burned out and was prospecting for uranium. I said, well, how long do you want me to run your practice? He says, I have no idea whether it's going to be one month, six months, uh, one year. He says, but he says, whatever income is produced, you keep it. And he says, my my staff, he had two people working for him, will take care of the business end of it. The practice was beef cattle, good horses, because Susan was the quarter horse capital of the country back then. Good horses. And the community of a few hundred people, dogs and cats, and one chinchilla farm. And at the end of uh, two weeks, I realized what life would be like 24-7. I understood why he'd burned out. Right. Uh, night after night, middle of the night calls, seven days a week. And I thought, how can I have this life and this practice and still have time to raise a family? I'm planning to get married. And I have, have hobbies. I have interests. And skiing. Especially skiing. <laughs> and I thought the solution is what exists in, in human medicine, a group practice. But it was a rarity. I couldn't find a group practice in the state of Arizona unless it was a father and son type of thing. Right. So I went to California, married Debbie, took her back there to that practice, and uh, decided to take the state boards in California. I said, there's no opportunity to join a group. I didn't want to create a group practice. I wanted to join one. Right. But I'm sure there'll be in California. So we cruised the whole state of California looking for it. I found two practices. I said, well, we should come along two weeks ago. We just hired a guy. That was made three doctors, oh. three doctor group. Yep. But I couldn't find the kind of practice I wanted. It didn't exist. But we uh, got down to L.A. where Debbie lived, staying with her family. First weekend, uh, Sunday, you can't job hunt on Sunday. So we went to Disneyland. It, it was a fairly new thing then. Yeah. Looked for practice. I got offered a job for $800 a month in a straight small animal practice in the San Fernando Valley, but I didn't want a straight small animal. So I turned it down. Searched the next week, and uh, Debbie said, what do you want to do Sunday? That's our day off from job hunting. I said, uh, well, you know, when we were in school, you told me you used to board a horse out in a place called Thousand Oaks, and you, were told, you told me how beautiful it is. She said, yeah. And I said, you remember I asked you, did they need a veterinarian there? And you said, oh, it's much too small a town. They couldn't. I'd like to see that place. So we drove out to Thousand Oaks, and uh, I found a valley that had never had a practicing veterinarian ever, nor a physician, nor a dentist. Population, 1,250 people, half dozen huge cattle ranches, a dozen racehorse farms, 
and veterinarians came from 30 to 50 miles away when they needed a veterinarian. And the only industry of any kind back then in the entire Conejo Valley was the wild animal industry, which supplied wild animals to Hollywood, which was commuting distance over the county line because uh, the uh, zoning rules were very lenient in Ventura County, and they were not in L.A. County. They had a huge zoo that charged people dollar admission to come in. They had over 100 big cats, lions, tigers, leopards, jaguars, and so on. And that wasn't all of it. There was a camel breeding farm. There was an elephant training center. There was a snake farm, which is right up the canyon here with, they said, every species of snake in the world. So whatever Hollywood needed, they could fill the, the demand. There was uh, Bird Wonderland, which also said, any kind of bird in the world, we've got them here. And then there were individual people with just a few animals. Yeah. Example was the Clark family, man and wife. They had two animals that they would rent out to Hollywood when they needed them. What were the animals? One was an African lion that shared their bedroom. I knew this was not going to be a normal animal. Full-grown African lion. They had bars, so the bedroom was divided into two parts. And then next to the bed was an aquarium, a glass aquarium with a spitting cobra in it. <laughs> Uh, and there were lots, lot of people like this. You didn't have to do house calls there ever. Well, you? this turned me on me because my animal interest involved every kind of animal. Yeah. But I was especially interested in wildlife mm. and especially interested in horses. Right. Although one of my professors said, if you want to do horse work, you only have two choices. The horse is a disappearing species thanks to the internal combustion engine. Mm-hmm. You can either do racetrack practice, yep. and I'd worked at the racetrack for two years at the starting gate, did not want to do racetrack practice, or said you have to locate in ranching country because the horse is needed for cattle ranching. Yep. So here I saw an area, no group practice, no veterinarian, local, but it had the possibility, and I thought, I think I can build a group practice here. Right. So you've had to shift your thinking from, I don't I want yes. to be a partner. Yes. But now you find the perfect opportunity. So Dippy and I rented a house and opened a practice here. Two years later, I opened an office because the area was starting to subdivide. People were coming in with dogs and cats. And, yeah. And uh, the rest is history. I built, when I got up to eight doctors, AVMA told me you have the largest mixed practice group in the United States. Well, that would not no longer be true. Right. When I retired, we had 12 doctors, which included an annual internship for a new graduate. We did that for 25 years. And today, I'm a client of the practice. The small animal has, last I heard, 23 veterinarians. Wow. And the large animal, which does horses only, yep. has six full-time veterinarians. So I built that group. I pioneered group that group practice. And I realized that I was pioneering a future trend 
because I started to get letters and telephone calls from veterinarians. How is your group practice going? How is, yeah, I'm working myself to death and I, I'd like, I'd like right. to do that. Uh, so there's a couple of different avenues I'd like to ask a little more about there. So sticking with the generational theme, and an interest of mine is in training and helping the next generation to cope, get the leg up, as it were, into practice and, and cope. The learning curve now, I mean, I think the learning curve has always been quite steep, but almost like there's a fear now that, that stalks people, a fear of litigation, a fear of making a mistake, a fear of everything going wrong and being played out in this phone and social media or whatever. Back then... Did those fears exist in graduates? I think about when I started out in practice, and I was probably more foolhardy than fearful. But did fears exist for graduates, you know, when you were starting, and also when you were employing graduates in your internship training program? What was the mindset of those graduates then? If there was fear, I, they never expressed it. Eagerness to learn. By the time we started our internship, we had a reputation. I published technical papers. I also wrote a column, Mind Over Miller, for 50 years. And so I, I got to be known in a profession. Yep. One thing I didn't mention is that at the midpoint of my career, at which time we had six, six veterinarians, and each of us had a responsibility. And Jim Petty was in charge of the business. He's the only business mind that we had. Right. <laughs> Jim says the horse practice is growing in quantity and quality. I think one of us has to kind of start to specialize in horses. And they all looked at me. I said, wait a minute. I started this practice. I love the variety here. And they said, yeah, but you're the only horseman in the group. So I agreed to do it for one year. Right. Mostly horses. Not We didn't divide it large and small. Yeah. We divided it as... Hospital practice and field practice. Huh. Well, the field practice, as the area rapidly subdivided, there was less and less cattle work. Right. And more and more horse work. So I said, I'll agree to do field work. That included the elephant farm and the camel breeding farm, for example. Maybe the lion. Uh, yeah, the, whatever the animal was. It was if it's not at there, the hospital. It was right. out. Got it. And besides, I like to work outdoors. Right. Especially in the California climate. Yes. Agreed. So I agreed to do it for one year, but I said, I want you to promise me that if I'm not happy, that I'll go back to what I've been doing. One month later, the next staff meeting, we have monthly staff meeting. I said, I just want you to know that I didn't realize how I was being overwhelmed trying to keep up with all species. I said, it was overwhelmingly to keep up on the cutting edge of small animal medicine and exotic animal medicine and birds and dolphins and whales because we got clients, to, you know, other large animal clients. How did you come to that realization? I suddenly felt the pressure could get off of me. Hmm. I was doing 98% horsework, yeah. completely at home. Yep. If I had to pick one species I especially liked, it was horses. Yep. I had done everything else. Yeah. In, as I said, including sea mammals. And uh, I suddenly realized that, and working out of doors full time. Yep. So I told them that 
I'm perfectly content to go on like this. I've done it all. And uh, I'm still part of it in this practice. And I'll still do occasionally wild animals. And there's still a few cattle around. And But I'm very happy doing mostly horse work. It sounds like. Yeah. And so that's what I did for the rest of my career. I mean, what a fascinating story. You find a path. You explore you check things out. It's almost it's almost the equivalent of somebody almost doing you know, dipping their feet in the water. Check that out. Check that out. Actually, your your story about being up in the Colorado mountains and the freezing water, and it reminded me a lot of my my practice. My desire was also to be in mixed practice in back in Scotland, and I remember, and it was also a February, and uh, after about four o'clock in the afternoon in Scotland, the sun is down in winter and it's gone until, you know, eight o'clock the next morning. And I'm stood in this hill outside of St. Andrews and there's snow coming down and we've, we've not got that many cattle to blood test, but we've got to take 30 blood samples. And these cattle want to be there even less than we want to be there. And we couldn't feel our hands and we're having to take the blood sample and we're dropping syringes everywhere. And it's good we couldn't feel our hands because we were getting them crushed so badly in the in the cattle cages. And I got off off that call and I thought, yeah, no, I think I'm going to go into small animals at that point. Oh, that's so common in the profession. Right. And you're, again, thinking of, you know, so you, you found a way. You, you knew what you want. You knew what you didn't want. You'd identified things you didn't want. You had an idea of what you did want. You found a place, and and what an absolute blinding place to wind up. You've started something you didn't want to start without the business experience, and it's grown. And then you've taken a chance on something, and each time you're taking a chance, each time you're you're sort of taking a, a calculated risk, it seems. But certainly, there's an element of risk in all of these decisions. But then finding that actually that's, you know, it's, it's pushing through the, the unknown into something. I mean, it's really, it's pioneering stuff. It's, it's phenomenal. And I think there are lessons in there for all of us when we're faced by challenges that we think, oh, actually, I don't think I want to do this. But when you give it a go, actually, the reality might be quite different to what you, you worry about. I pioneered another concept, too. I haven't discussed this or thought about it for quite a few years, but it's got me thinking back. The small animal part of practice back then invariably included grooming, bathing, and boarding. Yeah. I thought that detracted from the image, the professional image of veterinary medicine. So when I opened my first hospital, I was still in solo practice. I was by myself. Yeah. It was a rented facility. I did no grooming, no boarding. I remember when they opened the college here, California Lutheran College. The dean came in with a dog and said he wanted the dog groomed. So I'm glad they know there's a veterinarian here. He wanted the dog bathed and groomed. I said, uh, I, I do medicine and surgery only, and I still have my original card. It says Robert M. Miller, DVM, medicine and surgery of all animals, but it doesn't mention any other service. I didn't do uh, grooming. There was a very radical concept. I did have, uh, in the years that followed, veterinarians call me and say, did it hurt growing your practice? I said, hardly. I, I built a huge group. I said, I think, if anything, it may have 
advanced by professional image. The dean, I referred him to a veterinarian in uh, Camarillo, next town west of us, yep. who did everything and was a friend of mine. He came in a year later and he said, uh, he said, you know, you told me you didn't do any bathing and clipping and grooming. And he says, I was pretty upset. I said, you were visibly upset. You said, well, I'll just go elsewhere then. And he says, uh, I've been doing that. He says, I, I still go elsewhere to get my dog groomed. But he says, when is the health problem I come here? There you go. You'd find a niche immediately. I remember that. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, reading a lot of your articles, you're not a person who is – what comes across to me is your compassion for the animals. And then just in speaking to you just now, and, and I, that sounds like a, a really silly thing to say about a doctor, but it's but it's particularly true in some doctors. And, and in certainly in there are things that we have to do in veterinary medicine that don't always square away well with – what we would like to do maybe in our hearts in veterinary medicine, whether it's having to euthanize a, an animal, a dog, when it, you could fix it. The conflict between what we have to do to heal with animals compared to slaughter and obviously in the racing world as well. From your writings, you felt some of those conflicts as well. The turn of phrases which, which you use there, it always seems to me that you are, you're very clear on what you want and clear about your pathway. I guess the question there is, is that the case? Is it just what it seems to be the case from your writing? Now, I'm thinking of uh, the article, one of the articles you wrote, where you wrote, and it sounds like, you know, I bet you got as much hate mail as you got fan mail about the article, about exercising young horses, too, oh, too young. and working and them too young. Working them too oh. young. And also when, you know, when you would say to a, a breeder, you know, don't work them that young, and, and they wouldn't take your advice, and you'd say, well... You're going to be a good client in that case. And it's the same with the professor. You know, it's like, well, I do medicine. I don't do grooming. <laughs> I never thought it. And but it's a nice turn of phrase. You don't judge. I didn't see an analogy between the two. But one of the things I like best about this profession is that, with rare exceptions, the people who choose this profession are motivated by compassion. Now, some of that gets lost as we mature and become very money conscious yeah. and have to support families and have to pay mortgages and all that. And I know in a few cases, a very small percentage of cases, it disappears. But it's so rare to find an unethical, dishonest, cheating type of personality in this profession. We all have faults. But that, to me, that personality, that whatever it takes, I'll do whatever's necessary, Yeah, doesn't fit. The other thing is, every student today, with the information available today, yeah, we know that if we're going to go to school for eight years, that we can take another profession and make a lot more money. Right. This is not a profession that pays well, dollar-wise. Right. And we do it anyway. Right. We still do it. This is not intended to be a loaded question, but now I, I think about student debt. I'm going to come on to your writing in a second because I'm really fascinated by that. But just maybe we wind up this, this avenue of conversation 
the debt that these young doctors are accruing now on their way. When I, I graduated, I had a debt of about eight thousand pounds. That might be about twelve thousand dollars. You know, I I would earn all in with my whole package was about twenty five thousand pounds. So what's that going to be about? Maybe thirty five thousand dollars in my first year. I looking out what the graduates are graduating with debt wise. I'm hearing $150,000, worth of debt in the United Kingdom can be $60,000, pounds. And I look at the wage, in, the wage in the United Kingdom for a graduate vet is £30,000. Now, that's about a 25 30% drop in real buying power. I've been asked this, and I, I want to say to people, I would be a vet again if I had to go through it again, because I think there are ways to negate that. And I know that you feel like if you had to do your time again, you would do it again. How would you make it work with that level of debt? How do we help these kids from this position? You've asked a question that I'm going to have trouble answering. I told you I was in my second week of pre-veterinary studies when I decided to go to veterinary school. Never yeah. departed from that. Yeah. Although five years later before I, I was accepted. I was going to school on the GI Bill, yeah. living at home with my parents, paying them $25 a month for my share of the rent, which my, my mother put in a bank account and, and gave me as a present once I graduated, <laughs> veterinary school. Right. Yeah, I never right. knew about it. Oh, that's a nice she, present. Yeah. She accepted the 25 and, But once I decided to go to veterinary school, I dropped out of the GI Bill. I said, I better... I better save it for vet school. Yeah. Because it's much less expensive going to school here, pre-veterinary student, living at home. So I worked my way through four years of school. Right. I, full time. I worked weekends, jobs, worked every summer. What did you do? What kind of work did you take on? I washed dishes yep. uh, through f four years of uh, University of Arizona. Yep. Weekends. I had weekend jobs. Always yep. found work. Yep. Worked at the racetrack in the starter gate. Yep. Worked for a veterinarian, I told you. Yep. Summers, I always chose ranch jobs. They didn't pay well, but I didn't spend any money either. So at the end of the summer, I walked away with a full paycheck. This old equation. <laughs> and then saved the GI Bill for veterinary school. When I graduated veterinary, and I still worked summers, working at ranches again. Yep. And towards the end of 1949, I started cartooning for Western Horseman Magazine right. and supplemented my income right. with, with cartooning. Okay. When I graduated, I didn't owe anybody one penny. And I actually had some savings. Right. And this may be a shock to you, but there was a Chevrolet agency in town that had to deal only for veterinary students. If when you get your degree, we will sell you a new Chevrolet and you don't have to make a payment for one year because <laughs> they knew that the vets would be good for it. You'd be good for it. Yeah. So I, I bought a new Chevrolet Right. <laughs> when I graduated. Now, when I read the today's student debt, I realize that some parents, I'm sure it's a minority, can afford to pay for their kids' education. But I thought, how the heck do you do it when you're coming out of school with a debt of, what's the average now? It's at least 150 
but it can be up if you go like to the islands it can be i've I've heard that's north of 200 yeah i've read that of over two hundred thousand. right which means you're gonna have to probably practice for a decade in order to pay that off right i was blessed in not having to face that yeah yeah it seems a big big challenge and it almost feels like we're you know we're kicking the can down the street further of a debt problem that, that that is maybe coming so let's steer away from that then and i want to ask you about the cartooning and then um and the writing so when did you first realize this is something that a that you're good at and b you could get paid for because it looks like you've got those little those venn diagrams overlapping i didn't i love to write always made A's in, in school in writing and always flunked my math courses. <laughs> so you made A's in English and flunked your math? Y- yes. And um, actually in summer school, I took a course in journalism because I realized I had the ability to write and was curious about that. And that lifestyle didn't appeal to me. So when did you first realize that being... Oh. A, a writer was for you and cartoon. Okay, I was cartooning. I remember, I can remember sitting in a high chair drawing pictures of animals because, you know, throughout my life, people have said, uh, oh, you ought to study art, be commercial art. But all I do is cartoons of animals. When you say high chair, how old are you at this point? Oh, I. I would guess two or three. Wow. I, I actually have the- And you have memories. Yes, I have the memory of Incredible. it because I remember my mother's reaction. That's a dog. It, and it looked like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I have a six-year-old daughter and bless her. They're starting to look but like dogs, but only just now. Professionally, it had neither any reality to me or any possibility. I couldn't imagine making my living doing this sort of thing. So in 1949, I was working in the summer on a ranch about 50 miles west of Colorado Springs. And like I did in the Army and like I did with every job I ever did, I would draw cartoons of things that happened during the day just to make the guys laugh. I put them in the bunkhouse. They Sometimes they put them up on the wall. And my my boss said to me, you know, he said, um, the Western Horseman uh, is only 55 miles east of us. You ought to go there and show them your cartoons because they do uh, ranching cartoons all the time. And uh, I thought it was such an unlikely thing. I ignored him. <laughs> the third time he told me that, I said, well, the only day I have off is Sunday, and, and I'm sure they're closed on Sunday. He said, I'll give you a day off during the week. He did. All right. I went down there and I met Dick Spencer, editor and publisher. He became a lifetime friend as long as he lived. We shared our love of horses, our cartooning, because he was a cartoonist and a writer. Right. So we had a lot in common. Right. I uh, did a bunch of pencil sketches and I apologized for him. I said, these are just pencil sketches I do because... I work in long days, but I hang them up in the bunkhouse or I pass them around, and, and he went through them all. He said, these are great. He says, uh, we'll buy them. I said, which ones? They were paying $20 uh, for a cartoon, but I was working for 100 a month. Wow. He said, all of them. 
I was dumbfounded. He says, do them up in ink. So I stopped at an art store, first time in my life, and I bought India ink and pens and then the paper. And then for the next few weeks, I did each cartoon over again. I put each button on the shirt. And in the horse's feet, I had all the nails for the shoes. Yeah. Detail. Yeah. And then I got a boss gave me another day off. It was about a month later. Yeah. I went back down there. I gave him the deck, and I could see the disappointment in his face instantly. I said, I've never done ink work before. He said, it's not that. He said, the sketches you showed me were kind of simple. And he says, you've got so much detail here. He said, look, he said, the guy's cowboy boots, you've got the floral design on him. Yeah. I said, you like the other way better? He said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, I took up to half an hour on each one of these. He says, I don't doubt it. So I owe him a lifetime of appreciation for this. <laughs> Suddenly easier. I, easier. I, I said, those pencil sketches would take me about three minutes. <laughs> he says, do them in ink. He says, and bring them back. I did. And I cartooned for the Western Horseman forever after. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, even after I was a practice, I continued cartooning for them. And uh, without going into detail, uh, there was a, one of the veterinary journals published in Santa Barbara was unheard of for a medical scientific magazine to publish cartoons. But I thought, I wonder if he'd be interested. I, I was getting all kinds of ideas out of my practice. So I did a batch of them. But this time I'd learned to keep them simple. And I took him up there, and he went through him. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, I, I suppose you expect to be paid for these? I said, that's, that's the general idea. He said, the cartoons we're using now are done by a senior student at the vet school in Washington State. He does them for free. <laughs> they were terrible. I looked at him, I said, I picked the cartoons up. I said, if you're happy with those cartoons, you don't want mine. <laughs> and I went home. Two weeks later, he calls me. <laughs> and he says, uh, you know the cartoons you showed me? He says, there was uh, one cartoon. You take it off the wall, Debbie. It's in the bathroom. The statue. Yeah. <laughs> the camel. Yeah. <laughs> he says, you, you did one cartoon of a camel. I said, yes. And there's a veterinarian dressed like an Arab in back of it. And his arm's got two humps in it. <laughs> I said, yes. I, I said, I think I know what you're going to say. The camels that, uh, in the Middle East are, are Bactrian camels with one hump. And the, uh, the dromedaries. And the Bactrian camel is from northern uh, Siberia. It has two humps. He says, well, I don't know anything about that. I said, well, I, I did that because it's funnier with two humps. He says, anyway, he says, I'll buy that cartoon. <laughs> so I said, oh. I said, okay, I'll send it back to you. I said, thank you. And that was 20 bucks. <laughs> and uh, this was quite a few years ago. This is when I started for practice. And uh, just when I said goodbye to him, he shook my hand. He says, you know what? He says, why don't you send me the rest of those cartoons? He says, I'll, I'll use them all. 
Amazing. And he did, and I cartooned for modern veterinary practice until, uh, until the magazine quit functioning. It went out of business. So that started my veterinary cartooning career. Was that enough of, so you're, you're making, how many publications a week are going out? Like, are you making like $40 a month or 60 or $80 a month from your cartoons at this point? And is that enough to live on? Or is oh, that, no. Oh, what no. Was, what was your I, wage? I don't have the time. Yeah. I never did in practice. Didn't have the time to become a, but uh, Western Horsemen encouraged me to try other animal magazines. Yeah. Uh, the Western Livestock Magazines. Yeah. And uh, some of them bought my cartoons. Right. So I, I had, on top of the GI Bill, I had not a lot of money, but my room cost me $60 a month. So it- so you're covering that. It your covered cartoons. my- Your rent. And a lot of my meals, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Does that get you known in the world? Like how, how then does the writing come about from there? I enjoy cartooning. I right. did it most most of, until I started cartooning for Western Horsemen. I did it because I enjoy it. Right. And I enjoy making people laugh. <laughs> and I thought when I graduate vet school, I'm not going to be doing this anymore. Right. But every day I got these these experiences which led to, uh, gee, that would make a funny cartoon. <laughs> And uh, then what I saw, that modern veterinary practice was cartoons. That's what made me go up there. And uh, they dropped the, that student pretty quick and just <laughs> used my cartoons. <laughs> now, so that sort of, I, I can see where the cartoon came in. When did the writing start? Because you wrote, you wrote for 50 years as well. So really journalism sort of been your, your other big passion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really enjoy writing. I write a lot of articles for myself that I never submit for publication. Yep. Memories, concepts that I have. Maybe I'll share them with my, uh, my wife and my, uh, my son and daughter. My daughter's a professional journalist and say, I'm not going to ask this one to be published, but I thought you'd be interested in my, my uh, concepts. It's uh, just the way my head works. Yeah. And how did that get picked up such that that became professional for you? What? The writing, the, the actual publishing. So you were doing the, the cartoons. Well, I've... Did, that, did the cartoons come first or did the writing come first? The cartoons first? came first. I wrote my first article that I sold was in my third year veterinary school. Uh, by this time, I'm cartooning for Western Horsemen. I called Dick and I said, Dick, would you be interested in an article about the vet school up here? He says, yeah. If, mm. Yeah, he says, if, you, if it was a suitable article. So I wrote an article, and I still got it, called School for Horse Doctors for the Western Horseman Magazine. And he paid me for it. And uh, I wrote for that magazine from then on. I, now it's become very sporadic, once or twice a year that I do an article for them. But I've done two books. For two of them, of my articles, were the foundation of books for the Western Horseman, and one of them is a book that that changed my life. That was uh, imprint training of the newborn foal. I didn't invent it. I know I didn't invent it, and I've I've found proof that I didn't. That there were primitive peoples that did just what I was doing. Yeah. 
But I found a way of uh, shaping a horse's behavior for the rest of its life. And all of my horses, my own horses, are and have been imprint trained. And that, I did three articles on it for Western Horsemen. And then they called me and they said, we decided that was due to an open-minded. There was such resistance to it in the horse industry. I can't tell you. I don't know if I could have withstood the social media today, but the criticism I got for it. Yeah. I was called uh, by one PhD behaviorist, animal behaviorist, a foal rapist for working with foals as soon as they're born. But I learned as a veterinarian that what the foal experiences at birth, they retain forever. And I learned that one week, second week in May in 1959, I had to get out of bed three times and go out on dystocias. Yep. In each case I spent, I had to change the position of the foal. The, both mare and foal would have died. Yep. I had to manipulate them in the uterus, yep. forcibly extract the foal. And then, you know, you don't just jump in your car and drive off. This yeah. foal and mare have both been through a lot. So I stay around till the foal's on its feet yeah. and nursing, then I'll leave. So I spent, I estimated, two hours we each full handling it. Yeah. If I hadn't had three in one week, I might not, not have been cognizant of the effect. But I saw the first one. The mare had been rebred on her uh, full heat. So the foal was three, four weeks old. Yep. And the foal saw me, recognized me, and came up to the gate. And I came in, I petted it. I said to the owner, I said, you've been working with this foal? He said, no. He said, we haven't touched it since you delivered it. Huh. He said, it looks like it remembers you. I said, yeah, it's a sure gentleman. That's the second one was 100 days of age. Same reaction. Didn't come to me, but it allowed me to go to it and handle it and touch it. The next one was four months of age. That's when we were worming and vaccinating. And again, the foal saw me recognized me, came to me. And I said, you've been working with this fall? No, we haven't touched it since you, since you delivered. Well, I was familiar with imprinting in birds. Geese, yep. Conrad Lorenz, uh, yep. in 1935 had published it. But I didn't realize that it had also been identified in mammals. Yeah. I was too busy in vet school <laughs> to learn that. So that's, I thought, if it works in birds, why wouldn't it work in mammals? So we, we had a mare and foal, and I, I decided I'm going to experiment. I was trained in, in ag school not to handle newborn foals. You can avoid it. In veterinary school, avoid handling the newborn foal. You'll interfere with the bonding between mare and foal. You'll interfere and cause all kinds of problems. But this foal, when it was born... I spent two hours with it, forcibly keeping it on the ground and doing all kinds of veterinary things. I invaded every body opening and wiggled my finger a hundred times, handled it, tapped the feet a hundred times each foot. Yeah. And the next day I knew it was on to something. I said, I'd never seen a foal so easy to handle. Yeah. And every foal we've raised, Debbie, every, both mules and horses, we've never had one that 
had ever had any antipathy towards a human being, including the 32-year-old mule I'm riding now up at the barn, she never had ever has threatened a human being in any way whatsoever. So I went, I brought her into my, pra- I first, I did, we were raising one full a year. Yeah. I did three fulls of yeah. my own. And by then I thought, I don't care what everybody says, this works. And so then I introduced it into my practice. On a postpartum call, when I did the routine, I would say to the owner, would you like me to show you what I'm doing with my foals? Nobody refused. They said, yeah, sure, okay. Then I go through the whole routine. I didn't charge them for the time because it takes almost an hour to go through the whole routine. But I knew that that foal was going to be a good patient. So in a couple of years, I was spending so much time that I started to ask people, what are you going to do with this foal? If they said, oh, we've already... I did a lot of Arabian work there. We've already got it sold to uh, somebody in Canada or somebody back east. I didn't say anything. But if they said, oh, we're going to keep it, we want it for a broodmare. I say, would you like to see what I'm doing with my foals? So this went on for a decade. And I started to, I was writing regularly for the Western Horseman magazine. Yeah, I wrote three articles. They said, we'd like you to do a book. You'll have to add a bunch of chapters. That book is what put it on the map. It's yeah. all over the world. That's on every continent now. Yeah. How many copies have you sold of the book? The constant criticism I hardly ever hear anymore. In the past two years, I've read one article that said, you have to be careful that you do this correctly, which I agree with. Right. But the, it's been a long, hard battle, but it's it's going to take another half century before it's generally accepted everywhere because it's not so non-traditional. Yeah. But what I did is I explained it scientifically. Yeah. There is an explanation. So you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it changed our life because once the book came out, I start to get speaking invitations internationally. Well, I couldn't, I was busy in practice, so I, I was turning most of them down. Then in 1987, it had something to do with John Puckett. What? No. In, in 87? That made me change my mind, but I don't know why. I, oh, oh, you're right. A schoolmate of mine that practiced in L.A., younger than me, died. He was a good friend, a ski companion. Yeah. That's when I heard the clock ticking for the first time. I was uh, 59, and I told Debbie, I said, I'm turning down invitations to speak all over the world. I said, it will never pay as well as practice does, but it'll make life much more interesting for us. And she agreed with me. And so uh, at the next practice business meeting, I told my partners, I'll be 60 years old next year, 1987. I'll be 60. I never thought I'd say this, but I decided to retire, and they they were shocked because I was going full speed, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I told them why. I said, I've got an opportunity to travel the world and help the horse industry. So it was a good decision. Well, I had already started 
writing books, but I, I had other books I wanted to write. Right. And I thought, I'll never have time to write the books or accept all these invitations. If you're in practice. Unless I retire from practice. Yep. Monetarily, we should have stuck around five more years. I was still hale and hearty at 65, still an active skier. We'd be in a stronger financial position if had I done that. On the other hand, I said that to Debbie about 20 years after we retired. And Debbie said, yeah, but think what we did during those five years. And I looked at her. She said, we went to Africa twice. And we went to Europe uh, almost every year. And uh, I said, yeah, what's that worth? How do you put a price on that? Right. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to ask you, and I'm, I'm I was conscious of time, and I'm I could absolutely sit here till the darkness falls, you know. But I wondered, you know, you and Debbie are both magnificent for your age. You've you've carved up an interesting pathway through your career, through writing, through veterinary practice, through the equine world. Are there any habits or routines that have served you particularly well in in just having this? sustained level of success as you've gone through your career? Well, I, I already mentioned the fact that even as my practice grew and grew and grew and larger and larger and very successful practice, four of us were equal partners. Even as that, as that occurred, we still didn't groom. We still didn't board. That was our professional I mean and none of my partners ever protested that you just kept a single focus I I think it enhanced my career I yeah. think it it focused my attention on practicing medicine yeah and that's what I did best right and you've clearly loved the things that you've done and I've enjoyed that I've got the, the last few questions in my my podcast interviews we always go into what I call my short form questions so you can answer them any way you like, but the questions are quite short and have more of a more of a point or more of a focus, I think. So I'm just wondering, what is the thing that you do better than anybody else? What's your superpower? What's the secret? If you had to stand out and amongst all of your partners, you know, oftentimes people have a not specialism or speciality, but just one thing that they do better than anybody else that adds value to the to the mix, what would Dr. Miller's power be? I, I honestly don't know how to answer that. <laughs> the huge irony. Because each of my partners had qualities that I actually admired. We had a wonderful, wonderful partnership. Three of us are still around, but I'm not sure. I think I have good long distance foresight that's why I'm the only one out of the 40 pre-veterinary students that actually made it to vet school. Yeah. Clearly some tenacity mixed and in there. I achieved my goal of this mixed practice that only practiced medicine and state-of-the-art medicine. So that requires looking ahead, doesn't it? You've asked me a question I've never thought about. I think... My choice of partners mm. to go through 30 years of partnership and never, never have, ever have a difference of opinion between any of us 
incredible. And get along, complete trust. Picking this this part of the world, I never dreamed of even ever going to California. And I told you how I, I saw the opportunity here. So I had foresight. I did have right. foresight. Yeah. That's a, that's a very when good superpower. When I met this, this lady, I was a senior in vet school. And uh, I have to say, I just love the way both your faces yeah, light up for you looking at each other. Uh, it's amazing. We'd been dating just a short while, a couple of weeks, two or three weeks at most. We had open house at the vet school. <laughs> so open house for the townsfolk or the rest of the school or the faculty, anybody could see what the vet school's doing. And they had exhibits. One of the exhibits was a cow with ruminotomy. And they had a window, right? a porthole that you could actually lift the glass and look in, and it was a flashlight, and you could, you could see the churning food in there. So since I was already seriously thinking about the future with Debbie, I wanted her to see. So I said, you've got to come to, to the open house. So we went to the open house. Then I, I went there, and I opened the thing and shined the glass in. And I said, you're looking right into one of the cow's four stomachs. And so she looks in there, and she's looking, the cow coughs. <laughs> <laughs> and it spatters her. And she she cracks up laughing. And I thought, that's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a wonderful story. And I... <laughs> I've got, I've got. So Debbie, I don't want to get you in trouble, but Debbie's, Debbie's, Debbie was doing this when I asked you about what's your superpower. Like she make it like the yapping face, <laughs> his ability, his gift of the gab. I'm going to give Debbie the mic to say it now. Yeah, you're probably right. That's probably why I get invited to to speak. Bob was very good at taking a difficult topic and making it simple so the client could understand it. And if the client was not happy at something, he was the peacemaker. He could always settle the dispute. You've got multiple gifts in that case. So there you go. Never heard that before. There you go. Now you got, and, and this is now a three-way conversation, which blunt dissection has never heard. heard I, I actually think you guys could have a, a much better show than I wasn't here. It's quite fascinating, the, the back and forth. One of the things you don't get with the audio, obviously you don't get a picture, but I have to say the funness and the joy that I see in each of your eyes when you look at each other and share these stories is absolutely incredible. It's well, just wonderful to see. Our values, our values are very compatible, very... There's a better question. And so what are the values? Well, love of animals, for example. She is a genuine animal lover. And 62 years. That's inc- absolutely incredible. Congratulations. Yeah, I think girl. it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, I don't think that I'm going to be able to ask any questions that end it on a better, more wonderful, warmer note than that. So, Dr. Miller, where can we direct people to go? Where would you like them to go to learn more about you, your work with horses, your writing, your cartoons? And we're going to link everything well, up in the show Well, Learn Horses, uh, I've written some important books, I've been told. And I think they're important because uh, understanding the horse's behavior is so essential to get along with them. 
much true of other animals, including Homo sapiens. You yeah. have to understand what motivates us. Absolutely. A- amen to that. You've heard about my abilities. You haven't asked me, what are your disabilities? <laughs> I mentioned math, for example. Yeah. Anything involving electronic communication. I'm back in the 17th century. <laughs> I'm completely dependent upon her for increasingly as this more and more controls our communication abilities. Dr. Miller, I have to say, it's, I feel like we have scratched the surface of so many great stories and you know the, the love that you have and, and I can see in your writing and your, the humor in your cartoons, the fun, the cheekiness, the, the viewpoint on life. The twinkle in your eye is very real as it is. It comes across in your writing and your cartooning as well. So I just wanted to... Now I have some questions for you. You can. Where are you from and where did you go to veterinary school? Where's your hometown? So my home... I was born in Glasgow, but I went... And my hometown is on the east coast of Scotland in a little place, St. Andrews, the home of golf. And I went back to university in Glasgow. Glasgow. That's where... James Harriet, who became that is a, a good friend of mine. Right, this is this is an avenue we can't leave alone. Yeah, so a I'll, friend I'll... I only met face to face once, but I've got in my office I've got a stack of twenty years of correspondence. Oh my god! We, we wrote regularly. He initiated the relationship by telling me how much he loved my cartoons. And uh, that reflected his sense of humor. And I said, well, I feel the same way about your books. I've read all of your books, and I just love them. And uh, that started a 20-year exchange of letters. I only got to meet him once. We were on a lecture tour in England, and we, we visited the Yorkshire Dales. And, uh, he was everything that his books gave me the impression was a decent, humble, pleasant, humorous man. That yeah. blows my socks off because he, so yeah, he was so, my inspiration to get into veterinary medicine was watching his TV show on TV. He's the oh, reason, yes. he's the reason I, I mean, I'm sure I'm far from being alone and being the reason that, that people became a vet, but Alf White is his, his real oh, yes. name. And his son, Jim. So I'd met his son, Jim, who opened up the James Herriot Library at Glasgow University whilst I was a student. And I went back to lecture to the vets at Glasgow University about three weeks ago. And I, I was back in the Alf, you know, in, in the James Herriot Library. And I was just thinking, isn't it amazing? So to actually, one of my best friends worked to his practice in North Allerton just after graduation. Obviously, he was, bless him, was not with us at that point. But what an inspiration. What an incredible, incredible man. And what an incredible that your lives have sort of intertwined like that. I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. He initiated it by writing to me because he liked he cartoons. He liked cartoons. And I responded with a letter. And uh, that went on, as I said, but only one actual visit where I actually met him. But we corresponded regularly. In fact, I've got, I've got the last letter he wrote the day before he died. Oh my goodness! Yeah, handwritten letter. 
Yeah, he dictated it to his granddaughter. How incredible. Yeah. So I treasure those. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've got one request as well, which is a little thing. Would you be willing to read your favorite poem? Because I know you do poems. Would you read me your favorite poem and so we could tag it on the end of the podcast? Would you be up for reading one if I held the mic? Okay. I think it'd be amazing just because I, I read it. I haven't read it for years. <laughs> <laughs> Which one are you going to choose? Ode to the Pre-Vet. All right. Let's go. This is for all you pre-vets out there. Every morn at crack of dawn, into the locker room they flow. Their clothes they change for costume strange. Come with me then, behold the show. Bitching, griping, sulking, sniping, oaths and jests assail the ear. Gambling, selling, whining, yelling, midterms loom, some quick with fear. Rumors daring, mates comparing, raging at the candy machine. Smoking, hacking, nerves are cracking, a wilder bunch you've never seen. Can you stand more? Then through this door, let's see what the drives these souls insane. We'll now explore the clinic floor, a place that's sure to entertain. Hogs are moaning, squealing, groaning. Ivy needles pierce their ears. Dogs are heaving, feces leaving. Cleanup details move to tears. A horse is gasping, wheezing, rasping. He has heaves from dusty hay. A stallion's fighting, kicking, biting, but they'll gild him anyway. Puppies yiping, clients griping, a cow in labor balls in pain. Soon a Caesar will relieve her, then she'll prolapse with the strain. A bull is pawing, horns they're sawing, blood and gore are everywhere. An abscess burst where it hurts the worst. Tenacious pus is in the hair. Sheep are dying. Colts are shying. It's an awful scene to see. To save a life, the surgeon's knife. Next stop then is necropsy. Eyeballs burning. Blood counts learning. The crew in lab in white so neat. Soon stained with pee. And worse, you see. Speckled brown from top to seat. Oh, hurry then, let's leave this den of retching sights unseen as yet, and tell me now, why, when, and how you ever decided to be a vet. <laughs> it takes a vet to appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely awesome. How good, how good. I have such fun learning from you, learning a bit more about you. And Harriet, oh my God, my mind is blown forever now. Incredible. Thank you for the opportunity to come up to your beautiful home here and spend a little time getting to Thank know you. you better. And so we will bring today's show curtain down with a second poem by the wonderful Dr. Robert M. Miller called Words I Hate to Hear. Some terms, when heard by layman's ears, seem bland and free of harm. But these same words to DVMs cause concern and great alarm. Farm calls sometimes elicit a comment that causes fear. It's when offhand the client says, Oh, doctor, while you're here, inevitably the ask for task will occupy the day. And reaction to my fee will be, but you were here anyway. Now, when it comes to horses, as I approach the pen, 
The words I hate to hear the most are, he's afraid of men. Pet-owning clients do it too when they speak of their former vet. I shudder when they sweetly say, of course, he killed my pet. Large or small, the worst of all is when it's time to pay. The client takes a solemn oath. I'll send it Saturday. I'm proud of my prognoses, so you understand my chagrin. When they say, remember Brownie Doc? You said he'd never walk again. When I'm doing surgery, the words that make me sob and make me quake and spoil my day are, is he breathing, Bob? There are even words at home I hate, but it must all be told. The kids long since have gone to bed, and of course your dinner's cold. But the words I dread the most of all come on the phone at night. Country vets know what I mean. They recognize my plight. She's in labor, Doc, the caller says. Then come the words that pain us. One foot is showing where it should. The other's coming out the anus. So there you have it, folks. What an amazing episode. I so hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed making it. My massive gratitude to Dr. Miller and his wonderful wife, Debbie. Now, if you enjoyed the episode, if you're enjoying Blunt Dissection, please show some support. Buy a t-shirt. I make no other money from this podcast other than by your support. So I would deeply, deeply appreciate that. And also, please tell other people about the podcast. Tell people about what you get out of it, why you enjoy it, and where they can listen to it. And if you feel very generous, leave a star rating on iTunes. So until next time, please be safe, be well, be happy. Dr. Dave, out.